This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the very best bits of today's show. It is a Thursday, 17th of November, our final day from Abu Dhabi Finance Week. And what a show we have got for you today. Going to kick off with the man of the moment, the biggest, I would argue, newsmaker in the world at the moment, Chang Peng Zhao, CZ, the head of Binance, the crypto exchange, in Abu Dhabi, in the room with me and Brandy, we're going to hear his comments. What else have we got? Another absolute belting interview. Tony Fernandez is the founder of Air Asia, but he's much more than that as well. He's a multimillionaire business person. He, for many years, owned a Formula One team. Didn't end well. He will not be going to the Formula One in Abu Dhabi this weekend, but you're going to really enjoy the interview. Then what? Staying with the F1. John Licorice, who he? He's the boss of Flash Entertainment. They're putting on, among other things, four concerts this weekend from the rapper Dave, who I'd never heard of, but apparently the kids are into, uh, to Def Leppard, which is much more mine kind of era they're performing live after the f1 this week and finally talking real estate john lyons from espas real estate weighing in on the crypto debate that's the big talking point this week here at abu dhabi finance week and its relationship with real estate not always a good one but john is candid as always we like his thoughts all that to come but first up let's jump straight into it the big story abu dhabi cz here we go Taking to the stage at about 10.20 yesterday to a packed hall, people standing several deep around the sides of it, uh, was the founder and CEO of Binance, CZ as he is known. Uh, He's in the particularly fix it. So FTX at the moment um, is busy distancing itself a little bit from its founder, um, SBF. Uh, He's been tweeting about the the state of the company, his role, quite a bit of mea culpa, quite a bit of apologizing going on. Um, Those that have been appointed to to try and salvage something from it have have come out and said, look, um, he doesn't speak for us anymore. Um, CZ, though, is certainly speaking. This is he speaking to the media straight after he had been on stage to explain a little bit what went wrong with FTX and why Binance, another crypto exchange, is different. I think FTX converted user assets to to do trading. So I think FTX is run more like an exchange ran by a hedge fund. Um, The exchange is just the auxiliary part. Um, It's really to facilitate the hedge fund for trading. Whereas we are the exchange. Uh, We don't have a hedge fund. So uh, for us, the easiest way to avoid um, what happened at FTX is your user assets, just keep them as is. Uh, just make sure that you know, if the users uh, deposit Bitcoin with you, just keep those Bitcoins for that user. Um, that's it. it there's, there's no magic to it. We make money by charging a small fee, and we're profitable. So we're sustainable. So um, it's very simple. Like, there's, there's no, there's, it's, not, it's, not like, it's, not, it's not like something really tricky, really difficult to do. So... Uh, that's his summarization of the FTX situation. Um, CZ has done two things. Number one, he has said that he's going to be setting up an industry relief fund to try and stop the contagion. And you heard our previous guest there um, speak about some of the, uh, the issues and questions that were now being asked around other exchanges and crypto companies. Um, it, CZ put out a, a call to others in the industry and indeed to, to struggling companies, both 
for funds to, to help them and for applications from help. Some are saying that he's the saviour of Bitcoin. Some are not. Uh, Richard asked him yesterday if Bitcoin actually needed a saviour and if he was the man to do it. Well, first of all, I think crypto doesn't need a savior. It doesn't need saving. Crypto will be fine. Um, and I'm not a savior, <laughs> even if there was one. So I think we, we view ourselves as one of the participants in the industry. Um, I made a tweet saying we were selling our NFTs, just the FTT tokens, just to be transparent. It may have caused a stir, which may trigger things, but uh, I'm not a savior. Um, and we do try to do things to protect our users in the industry. So we're, we're one of the participants in, in the industry. So, and crypto is, re- crypto is very decentralized. Um, Bitcoin is not going away. Uh, BNB is not going away. Ethereum is not going away. Um, and they're still growing. So I don't think uh, short-term, the short-term price fluctuations. But to be honest, given what's happened in the, in the crypto space, crypto have, have actually shown extreme resilience. Right? So uh, Bitcoin is still near, uh, it's still pretty close to 20K, which was like in 2017 was the all-time high. So um, it's it, so I think the industry will be fine. So that fund, then that relief fund, who's going to join Binance in propping up the industry? Players who have who have very strong financials today, and we should you know band together and try to help some of the projects that that's in need, uh, especially if they only need financial need, and otherwise the project uh, are strong. So we have got we've got very significant interest uh, to help already. Um, I don't want to give the names yet because they're, they're they, so they come to me. I just pass it to our team. Uh, so I don't know what's, uh, what, what are the specific numbers being discussed. I don't know who's confirmed, who's not yet. Um, this literally happened over the last 24, 48, 48 hours. So um, I think over the next couple of weeks or so, um, whoever committed, um, there will be more and more news coming out. Um, but that's just a few industry players coming together to try to help the uh, other smaller players that may be you know, crunch position in the industry. This is very different from a central bank. Uh, we don't print money. Um, so we use our own cash, uh, our own reserves to help other projects. And this is an industry effort. Uh, this is specifically why I didn't want Binance to be the only one doing this. And I also knew the, from conversation with other players that, that they want to, every player that's healthy today want the industry to be healthy. So the quicker we can uh, help the um, people who are in a crunch to get over it, the better it is for the industry. So this is very different from central banks stepping in, making policies, um, um, doing quantitative easing, printing more money, etc. We, we don't have the ability to print more money. So we're just using uh, the money we made before, our cash reserves, to help other projects. Uh, so this is very much an industry player-led effort. Right. So he doesn't want to say who else is going to get involved. Would he then say how much money... Binance was willing to put up. He says it's going to invest in companies um, that are solid but just have a liquidity crunch. So how also is he going to verify the solidity of some of those firms? Uh, I think we'll get, a, we'll, 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 we'll get a bunch of projects coming to us and say, hey, look, um, we need help, and we'll figure out how much they need help. Uh, we'll just invest or help them. Uh, us, uh, us, we're able to work out deals and agree on, on, on those terms. Uh, in my mind, I don't have a specific limit on the size of the fund, uh, etc. We can we can do we can do a small one, we can do a big one, um, as lo- and, and and also in this industry, what you got to understand is that everything changes almost every day. So tomorrow, Bitcoin may go up to sixty thousand. Then um, we will no, number one probably not that many projects will need funding again, um, and there will be a lot more cash in the in the system. We can fund a lot more. 
or tomorrow Bitcoin can drop further, then we would, we would be more conservative. So everything changes pretty dynamically. So today, we have more than 10 different funds saying that they want to contribute. And we also have more than 10, 10 20 projects saying that they may, need, they may be in need of cash. So we just need to figure out what's, how much do they need, et cetera. Um, based, on my, uh, based on the initial interaction so far, uh, most projects don't need a large amount of funds. Uh, most projects are quite small. They, have some, they may have some funds parked on, by, uh, on FTX they couldn't get out. Uh, most, fun, most projects are quite healthy. Um, there's a couple big ones. Um, and the bigger ones, um, they also have big backers. So we'll, we'll have to see uh, uh, what happens to those. Yeah. So is he a man riding in on a white horse to save the day? Not everyone who took to the stage yesterday in Abu Dhabi thought so. Oof. Nouriel Rabini. Dr. Doom, and he's known, as he's known, the man who predicted the global financial crisis, was on after CZ. He is very critical of Bitcoin and very critical of CZ. This is what he had to say. What are the seven C's of uh, crypto? Uh, concealed, corrupt, crooks, criminals, conmen, carnival barkers, and finally CZ, who's just on the stage right now. I was supposed to debate him a year ago here in the UAE. At the last moment, he decided to escape. He didn't want to be on the same stage as me. That's Noriel Rabini, and that is the edited nice version. He was speaking to CNBC's Dan Murphy. If you want to see uh, a more extended clip, then go to the CNBC website. But Noriel Rabini, very, very critical of CZ and cryptocurrencies in general. A lively debate, and that is what you want. And that is why we're down here live at Abu Dhabi Finance Week. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiI1038.com. Yeah, no shortage of big names here at Abu Dhabi uh, Finance Week. Uh, one of them is Tony Fernandez in town to speak, not just at Finance Week, but also at the Milken Summit, the CEO of Air Asia parent company Capital A. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brandy. Uh, fresh off a plane and in our makeshift studio to discuss what's happening, particularly in the aviation industry. And it's a fascinating time to be talking to you. We've got the high energy prices, we've got high inflation, we've got fears of a global recession. What has it meant for AirAsia and AirAsia X? Well, I mean, first thing is that we're flying. After uh, three years of uh, you know unbelievable times, we survived that. We've now, now the main thing is to get our fleet back, uh, all 220 planes. We've now got 115 flying. Uh, but the good news is that demand is very, very strong. And uh, even though currencies are against us versus the US dollar, interest rates have risen and uh, fuel prices have gone up, uh, fares are able to cover that uh, increase in costs. How does, and I'm thinking more here of, of AirAsia X, mm. how does a more budget airline cope with those costs? How much can you put the fares up there? Well, I think everyone has put the fares up, so it's relative. So right now what we're seeing, what I've said for a while, people in Asia certainly put travel as number one priority. They would rather cut back on other costs than, um, than cut back travel. While the full-service airlines have put the fares up quite dramatically, we in the low-cost industry have followed, so the gap is still quite substantial, you know, 50% between us and a full service. So, uh, and demand seems to be there, even with this uh, price hike. Aviation fares have generally been probably lower than they should have been, and I think COVID has probably put them at a more realistic level now. Do you see that level staying? Is that the new normal for flight? 
I believe it is. Now, there are two things that in my 21 years in aviation, and I came from the music business, uh, um, aviation people are not the most disciplined in the world. Lots of capacity comes in when things are good, um, and a lot of new entrants come in, which uh, put up a lot of new capacity. That has always meant aviation has been a poor return of capital. I now begin to see even national carriers behaving very sensibly, uh, reducing their capacity, making capacity uh, with their market. So I believe, I am the optimist, you have to be in the aviation business, but I believe that uh, we're in for a, a good period of uh, very good returns in the aviation business. Very good returns because higher margins? The aviation higher business is wafer thin. Yeah, higher margins. And the wafer thin margins have been caused by excess capacity, crazy competition, and what I'd say is um, unfair level playing fields with government airlines who just get subsidies from the government and produce loss-making fares to compete. A lot of that has been taken out of the market from COVID. So there was one benefit of COVID. Second thing to add in the aviation business changed quite dramatically is e-commerce. And so cargo, which was never a big business for me, was there, but it was, it was kind of a stepchild, has now become a very big part of our business. And during COVID, I, I reset AirAsia and set up three or four companies based on our data. A, a, airlines have incredible data, which uh, most airlines have not used. We set up a fintech company, um, logistics company, and a super app of travel. So um, that has enabled us to diversify a little bit from uh, the aviation as well. Before we get into that diversification, mm. Is there a point at which we could see demand destruction with, with higher fares? Are people cut back on discretion? Without doubt. Without doubt. There is a point where people will say, enough's enough, right? Uh, I'm very wary of that because I'm at the sharp end of the business. Um, I don't feel we've, we're near that point. I do believe oil is not going to stay where it is. I do believe the dollar won't stay where it is either. So fares will invariably come down, but the margins will still be there because the costs will, will go down. What kind of time frame would you put on that? Well, if I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, but, uh, but one would say, look, we've gone through very, very hard geopolitical situations. It's good to see as a businessman, the Chinese and the Americans talking. It's good to see talks you know, about potential peace in Europe. Um, so those things are big drivers. Uh, recession is going to bring we're going to have a recession there's no two ways about it that benefits an airline such as ours because you know we're a value carrier so people trade down and our other businesses and logistics I would say in the next 12 months we'll see quite a different cost structure for the aviation business where does China play in all of this well we're waiting um, you know while the world has seen COVID to an end it's fantastic coming here and seeing nobody with a mask um, we still have North Asia with a lot of masks and China is still closed some good noise coming out of China so maybe that will open uh, but really we don't know but that's the last piece so aviation in Asia has a massive boost when China opens we're doing very well without China when China opens that's a massive massive uh, tailwind let's have a chat about some of the changes you have mm. made during mm. this period you mentioned using customer data more there how and for what well within the airline uh, we, we're using it to target, sell better, make more better decisions. Uh, we're using data to stay away from high advertising costs in the digital world. Uh, we're using data to make the passenger experience better through Face ID, 
easy check-ins, um, working with immigration authorities to, to make the airport experience better as well. And of course, cut costs at the same time. From the data we had, our loyalty data, we had the largest loyalty company in, in Southeast Asia, in ASEAN. We have gone and built a fintech, which is uh, focused on lending and uh, remittances. We've built a digital cargo airline, and uh, we've gone into food delivery and, and ride hailing, would you believe? And so we've created, you know, I created a company called Capital A, which is our Holco, uh, a very unique ecosystem based on travel. And, uh, you know, our ride hailing, which we just started very recently, is going gangbusters. You know, and everyone thought, how could we take on the big boys like Grab? But in a very short period of time, we, we are gaining market share very, very quickly. And that's from fantastic loyalty to our brand and very, very good data. How do you enter those two very competitive industries and, I mean, and mm. still make money? We've seen what's happened to Deliveroo yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Are you having to operate at a loss to get started? No, I mean, I don't have the kind of resources these guys have with, with big amounts of capital coming in to go and build businesses. Look, 21 years ago, I left the music business, um, selling Crowded House, uh, <laughs> etc., and uh, started an airline with two planes and no capital. So I know how to build businesses with little cash. We went from two planes to 220 planes, from 200,000 passengers to uh, 90 million, becoming the fourth largest airline in Asia. The mobility business is a fantastic, ride-hailing business is a fantastic business. Now, we're coming in late. We haven't had to educate the public. We haven't had to go and develop. Other people have done that, so we've benefited from that. I didn't create low-cost airlines. I learned from Ryanair and EasyJet and Southwest. So we have benefited from other people making those decisions and doing it more efficiently and cheaper. And before we let you go, 30 seconds, speaking of mobility, will you be at the F1 this weekend? Um, I, I might make a peak, um, but no. You know, I had an F1 team. It cost me a lot of money. I've got bruises all over to show it, so I uh, haven't quite recovered. Maybe next year. Tony Fernandez is the CEO of AirAsia parent company Capital A, speaking to us and indeed to the crowds down here at Abu Dhabi Finance Week. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We are talking about the economics of entertainment. So much happening in Abu Dhabi, or indeed in Dubai as well this weekend across the UAE. We've got Abu Dhabi Finance Week. We've got the Abu Dhabi Formula One. And of course, to go with the Formula One, we've got the concert. Benji is our DJ this morning. Benji, let's have some Def Leppard. Headlining the Formula One concerts on Sunday night, and the man who's put it together is the CEO of Flash Entertainment here in Abu Dhabi, John Licorice. He's live in our studio at Abu Dhabi Global Market. Morning, John. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, mate? Multiple concerts this weekend. Yeah, I'm shattered already. But uh, for me, the biggest uh, time suck is the week before. So uh, on the ground, everything's smooth, and that's really up to my team. Um, So... It should be fairly relaxed. So can we just take a a step back and think about what it is, first of all, the what of what you're putting on this weekend. Three concerts on the Friday and Saturday and Sunday night after practice and then the the event, but more than that as well. Yeah, well, actually doing four nights. Uh, Don't mean to correct you, but uh, it's part of our kind of entertainment program for Abu Dhabi and it's for ticket holders only. Um, We've been doing this since 2009. I think we were the first um, circuit 
to actually deliver an entertainment package. And now this is uh, kind of the standard, especially for the new races. If you're not doing entertainment around the Formula One, you know, um, then they're not going to be happy. So we have on Thursday, uh, Dave is a multi-platinum uh, UK artist performing with Usher. On Friday, we have uh, Swedish House Mafia, who just reunited after... I They've been gone for years. ages. 13 years. So yeah. this is their, their global kind of comeback. Uh, the show's amazing, especially with the visuals. And I think we've all been kind of waiting for them to, to reunite. And here it is. Um, and then on Saturday, of course, so we have uh, the legendary Kendrick Lamar. Uh, I saw a show in Toronto. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. So uh, we're really excited. And, of course, Def Leppard on Sunday. You know, the legacy act that we always try to um, have the race close out with. It's the last race of the season. And what else better than, uh, you know, a band with all the hits who've just recently started touring again back in 18 and just came off a successful um, USA-Canada run. And how difficult, or, or maybe I should say expensive, is it to bring <laughs> these acts together? Because you've got Def Leppard, okay, they're more my generation, I'm 50 years old, but I know Tom Urker, our co-host, right. uh, his son is like, Dad, if you cannot get me tickets for Dave, you are no longer my father. Oh, Wow. Uh, yeah, we and he's 16. Yes, exactly. Well, we try to appeal to the broadest audience as possible. Um, we're trying to encourage you know, new fans, uh, which there's a lot of this year, if you've seen around the world, the global circuit. And we're also trying to appeal to you know, some of the audience like yourself and myself. And that's the formula we've been going with since, uh, as I said, 2009. There's something for everybody. Um, and even if you're not a fan, you know, the opportunity to see someone you normally wouldn't see. And I think there'll be a lot of people who uh, are pleasantly surprised, uh, the younger generation, um, about Def Leppard. I mean, it's just classic songs, classic albums. Uh, I used to listen to uh, Hysteria and Pyromania. And, uh, you know, I still remember all the lyrics to all the songs when I started playing them again. Be honest, did you play air guitar in your bedroom of growing course. up? Of course, who doesn't? I still do. Actually, <laughs> it goes between drums and air guitar, depending on uh, what kind of band I'm listening to. <laughs> so... In terms of the other stuff that you're doing, the events industry, the music industry is back with a bang. We've been reading over the past 24 hours or so about Taylor Swift. She's touring again. Yes. Uh, arguably the biggest artist in the world at the moment. Maybe Drake, whatever, but she is. And it's, it's crashed the internet. It's crashed yeah. ticket, ticket milestone. How do you as an industry cope with revenge concert going? Well, it's a great thing. I mean, if the more demands you have, obviously as a promoter, you're driving your business um people are really you know wanting to get back into that social environment congregating with friends going to have those life experiences as opposed to you know more of the material possessions especially with the younger generation um and it's just great to go to a live show watching people you know enjoy each each song as it plays is one of my favorite things just watching the crowd so you know the the demand is definitely there for the f1 and of course we're seeing that through the music scene as well um Taylor Swift blowing up. I mean, you know, that was kind of a foregone conclusion. <laughs> I don't think any ticketing system would be prepared for the demand for that because, uh, as I said, people have been starved of it. So now they're kind of feasting at the trough. That they are, and yet your costs are going up as well. Inflation is a thing around the world, yeah. whether it's the, the, the fees that the artists charge and their entourages charge or just you know, the, the hotel bills that you have. If you're putting these people up during... Abu Dhabi Formula One weekend, oh, that, yeah, that ain't cheap. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, again, this is the, the biggest uh, Formula One we've ever had in Abu Dhabi, as far as numbers go. Because um, they built a new stadium, right? A new stand. They built new stands to accommodate that, uh, that extra demand. 
uh, which is fantastic for the city. You know, you're going to see 65,000 people just who are going to the event, uh, you know, descend on, on uh, the city at this time, as you said, is very, very busy. Um, you know, we're excited for that, but the costs are crazy. Um, you know, we used to sh you could ship a container for, you know, roughly 3,000 US dollars anywhere in the world. That cost is now $15,000, $20,000. You know, the demand. But Def Leppard have a lot of drums. Yeah, they do. Uh, there are a lot of drums. It's uh, also the flights, the hotels. Uh, you know, people weren't working in the entertainment industry, as you know, because of COVID. And now people are kind of reassessing their lives and saying, okay, well, if I'm going to be going on the road and I'm going to be without my family or my friends, you know, they want to be paid properly for that. So those fees have gone up considerably. Um, so it's been a kind of a, a, I think, a personal reckoning across the world about what's really important. And uh, when you have people who are reluctant to do what they were doing before, you know, obviously to get the good people you need for, you know, the world-class events that we deliver, you know, those, uh, those uh, fees have gone up as well. So we're feeling it across the market. Um, a lot of those costs are pushed not only us, but the band. So they're requiring more fees just to make it economically uh, sensible for them. John Licorice is the CEO of Flash Entertainment here in Abu Dhabi, putting on the events for the Formula One Grand Prix and much, much more. This is the Business Breakfast Dubai I-103.8 FM. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It's all been about the crypto here in the last 24 hours uh, at the Abu Dhabi Finance Week. And we're taking that discussion into another investment realm. That investment realm is real estate. Very pleased to be joined on the line by our friendly real estate guru this morning, John Lyons from Espace Real Estate. John, thanks for joining us. Good morning. How are you both? John, before we speak to you, let's put this in context. Let's hear from Shangping Zhao, the CEO and founder of Binance, uh, what he was saying yesterday about the implosion of, of FTX and why Binance is different, just to remind us of the situation we're dealing with at the moment. I think FTF converted user assets to, to, to do trading. So I think FTX is run more like an exchange ran by a hedge fund. Um, the exchange is just the auxiliary part. Um, it's really to facilitate the hedge fund for trading. Whereas we are the exchange. Uh, we don't have a hedge fund. So uh, for us, the easiest way to avoid um, what happened at FTX is your user assets, just keep them as is. Uh, just make sure that you know, if the users uh, deposit Bitcoin with you, just keep those Bitcoins for that user. Um, that's it. it there's, there's no magic to it. We make money by charging a small fee, and we're profitable, so we're sustainable. So um, it's very simple. Like there's, there's no, there's, it's not, it's not like it's not, it's not like something really tricky, really difficult to do. Now, CZ went on to say that crypto wasn't going anywhere, uh, but realizing that confidence had been shaken. What does that mean for the real estate industry here in the UAE? As I said, joined by John Lyons, he's the managing director for Espes Real Estate. John, what does crypto's quake mean for real estate investment? I think that um, the turmoil in the crypto space just probably refocuses everyone's mind and highlights the fact that a much better store of wealth and a safer place to put your money is something that is truly tangible like real estate. So I think that what you'll probably see is people start to really question whether the crypto space is a genuine good asset class to be invested in and alternatives 
might come back to the forefront, a good alternative would be real estate. I think a lot of people will be looking to get their money out of crypto and into real estate. So it's probably a good thing for the for the real estate market. Is it an either or though, in terms of investments? No, I don't think it is. I think many I think many people that invest in crypto will be uh, all sorts of different investors. They'll be doing it for different reasons, but there will be some that have quite a lot of wealth in the crypto space. And to those people, they will be seriously questioning, I imagine, whether that's a good place to continue holding their wealth. And you only need a small percentage of them to start thinking to put it into different asset classes. It won't just be to buy real estate that benefits from that, but there'll be other asset classes, I'm sure, that money will flow into as well if people start to move significant amount of wealth out of the crypto space, which I imagine will be the case given the situation. What about money coming into real estate from crypto? Where are we at the moment with the rules and regulations in Dubai around that? At the moment, it's still a little bit... Um, unclear exactly how you could go about transferring properties with crypto. We have seen situations with specific developers and certain clients where there is trust there and deals can be negotiated where there is an exchange of cryptocurrency for the off-plan properties. Um, that's a little bit more challenging to, to do in the secondary market because the process isn't really set up to allow trust between the buyer and the seller to be controlled by a third party. So I think that we're still quite a little bit away from seeing lots of secondary market transactions take place with crypto. And this probably puts us back a couple of steps in that regard as well. John, good morning, it's Richard here. On the crypto thing, it's reminded me of a story. You might remember this, I bet you do remember this one, from um, about three or four years ago. It was September, of 2017, five years ago now, a British entrepreneur, Michelle Moan, um, she was a, a lingerie entrepreneur, made a lot of money in apparel, and she announced a real estate project in Dubai, which was going to be, in her words, the first major development where you can purchase in Bitcoin. And we spoke to her at the time because she's quite high profile. She's actually Baroness uh, Moan. I mean, she was given a peerage in the United Kingdom. She's quite high profile in the United Kingdom, not necessarily here. But we spoke to her about it at the time. Uh, five years on, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure of the progress. But what do you make of this idea that you can, that you, Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or whichever crypto could be a viable medium of exchange, a currency in layman's terms, for buying and selling real estate, John? It could be. And I think back in back in those days when you're talking about the project, I remember the project that Michelle Moon um, was launching. It was largely, I think, a bit of a PR stunt. Um, I don't know how viable it would have been to actually sell an entire project in crypto because the vast majority of demand for the asset class comes from people who are still have their wealth in traditional uh, places like the banking system. But it was a good PR stunt at the time, I suppose. I, I just think that while we have seen some transfers take place with developers in crypto, I think that you're going to see now questions placed over whether that's still a good idea. Because in the end of the day, when you see massive exchanges going bust and you start to look behind um, the scenes, it would be pretty concerning to think of doing a lot of big business in a crypto space, which is completely unregulated. And as we've seen, there's a lot of things going on that shouldn't be going on and a lot of people's money is at risk. So I will be surprised if we see a lot of deals taking place in crypto in the next uh, couple of months. It's interesting. The, the words of Nouriel Roubini are ringing in our ears this morning, speaking here yesterday, the seven C's of crypto. Um, 
One of them was crooks. His words, I'm not saying that's the business breakfast for you at all, but one thing that you do have to do as a, one of the bigger real estate brokers in Dubai uh, and, and, and an industry leader is KYC and anti-money laundering. So if someone turns up and wants to buy a villa on the palm and it's all in, in a Bitcoin wallet, how do you approach that? I mean, because, you know, you, with love, your Espas real estate, you know, you don't have a massive compliance department and yet you've got to play by the rules. How do you approach that, John? Yes, definitely. We, we still have to go through all of the same money laundering protocols. We've got a money laundering compliance officer. It's his responsibility to make sure that the source of funds is clean and that he ticks all the relevant boxes as per the regulation that's been brought in in recent years. Um, but you know, none of that would change regardless of which currency someone's using to try and buy a property. But you mentioned Nouriel Roubini. I, I listened to his interview last night and I thought it was pretty scathing, obviously. It was quite interesting to hear him. And if you look at an economist like him, obviously super intelligent guy, 2007, he accurately forecasted the failure of common sense in the banking system at the time. And we all know what happened with the global financial crisis. A few years later, I remember reading a book called A Colossal Failure of Common Sense. And when you read that book, you don't need to be an economist to realize it was a colossal failure of common sense. I wonder now whether it's only the economists that can see what's happening ahead of us. And in the future, a year or two from now, we might all be reading A Colossal fail Failure of Common Sense, Mark II. And it will be quite clear to us that probably it is a bit of a colossal failure of common sense with what's going on in the crypto space. John? Great talking to you, as always. Appreciate your time this morning. More from uh, John Lyons uh, to come a little bit later on. If you've got any comments or questions, keep them coming, 4001, or use the ARM Play app. This is the Business Breakfast, live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.